Well, it's good to be here this morning. Looking forward to preaching to you. I appreciate Aaron leading that song, that last hymn, The Love of God. That's probably my favorite hymn. And I was thinking about that. And I don't want to bash modern Christian music at all other than this. I could write it. I couldn't write the third verse to O Love of God on my best day. There's no way. I mean, that's just a beautiful hymn. And I appreciate you leading that. It's one of my favorites. So that, that had nothing to do with anything other than I was thinking about that. All right, 2 Kings in chapter number 5. 2 Kings chapter number 5. Your guest with us. We're glad that you're here. And I see some that I don't know. So I'm glad that you came this morning. And I pray today's a blessing. And God uses a service to speak to your heart. And uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for being our guest. So in 2 Kings in chapter number 5, uh, this story is probably uh, very familiar to you. And I, I wasn't sure if I had preached on this uh, for some reason. I, this story uh, was just standing out to me th this week. And I looked in my uh, files to see if I had preached on it. And you can count the number of times I preached this story on one finger. <laughs> and that was a long time ago, evidently. And I didn't even remember that. And for some reason, I've ignored it. It's such a great story, and there's so much in here. So you follow along as I read the story of Naaman, chapter 5 of 2 Kings, starting in verse number 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable. Notice how... The writer puts this, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor. If you could stop right there, you'd be like, man, this guy's got it made. He is on top. But then you have to read the rest. But he was a leper. And I don't have to explain to you what all that would mean uh, in that time frame, but... This was, uh, this was serious. This was a bad deal. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. So now the story, you understand, you have Naaman who's a great man who's also a leper. And he just happens to have an Israelite maid in his home. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with a prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Just one day they're just talking and she spills that out. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go. And I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him, look at all this that he takes, ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. <laughs> The king of Israel is reading this. Oh, now I'm dead. What am I going to do? Can't recover him of his leprosy. In verse 7, it came to pass when the king of Israel read the letter, he rent his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive and this man to send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. He's trying to pick a fight. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? 
Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses, with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come unto thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth. He went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his God and strike his hand over the place, you know, <laughs> do something, recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar uh, rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I wash in them? Be clean. So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldn't thou have done it? How much rather than he said to thee, Wash and be clean. And then he went down, dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servants. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, listen to this, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant Two mules burden of earth. He said, I want to take some dirt home. For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord also, listen, he's seeking some forgiveness. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth unto the house of Rimmon to worship there, he leaneth on my hand. And I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. Behold, I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon. The Lord pardon thy servant this thing. He said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you use this story to speak to us? We're thankful for your word. May we respond as you speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, everyone, I'm going I'm to make this statement. I think it's probably true. Everyone in this room has at least one problem. Now, you're thinking, if I only had one, life would be good. So, think about this. If you put your problems on a scale of importance... From minor annoyance to catastrophic, hopeless disaster. Hopefully, yours would tend toward minor annoyance. Hopefully. Now, some of you, it's possible, have a problem in your world that tips the scale. And for you, disaster is all you can see for whatever issue this is. That could be the case. But I'd say most of us, we just deal with minor annoyances over and over. Like, for instance, you may have, for instance, just a for instance, an appliance problem. Just for instance, you had a washing machine at your house. And your wife, just pretend, had to push the start button Yay, 50 to 75 times in a row to, for it to engage. That's a minor annoyance. Well, it is to me because I'm not <laughs> pushing the start button. Now, I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. Brother Ted, don't you have a son in that business who could fix <laughs> said washing machine? And then I would say to you, evidently the repair costs 10 times more than the washer. So I tell the wife, 
keep pushing the start button. <laughs> That's a minor annoyance. Maybe you've got a car that only makes left turns. <laughs> that would go under minor annoyance. So, you know what I mean? Just something that you just live with, it just bugs you. But you put up with it and you don't really think about it all the time until you have to deal with it. And it's possible, though, and, I, and I've been there here, too, in this way. Your problem could be something altogether different. If you sat in the doctor's office and had him give you the report or someone you care about, that's, that's bigger than a washing machine button. Maybe you have a child and he's doing the prodigal thing. Maybe your job right now is uh, iffy. It's, things aren't well at your job. Or maybe your marriage right now it could be you're dealing with a marriage and you're just hanging on by a thread. Or bills that you can't pay. Uh, relationships you can't seem to mend, problems that literally do keep you up at night, those are not minor annoyances. So I want you to imagine this, that if you woke up in the morning and you discovered that you had leprosy, now to us in the Western world and culture in this time frame, that doesn't mean maybe as much as it did in their day. But if it did, and if we really understood what they thought about it, can I tell you where that would fall on the scale? And I have a feeling if you woke up and that was your issue, if you just happened to look in the mirror and you saw what you were pretty confident was the beginning of the most dreaded disease probably that man ever experienced, you would um, forget all your other problems. Some problems are so serious that nothing else matters. The minor annoyances don't matter. The bigger issues even than minor annoyances, they may not matter. Because you've got this one issue. And it dominates all of your time and all of your thinking and all of your uh, waking moments and at that point can I tell you all the toys that you own don't mean anything and the bank accounts and the investments and all that stuff that you may have it doesn't mean anything anymore and even the power and position that you may have it doesn't mean anything anymore what links would you go to to be uh, cured, to be healed, what would you do? What if the cure was simple and required humility? Would you do it then? I think most of us would say, well, yeah. If I had this dreaded disease and leprosy is a death sentence, if I had this dreaded disease and someone offered me a cure that was just simple and even required some childlike humility, I would do it. Well, Naaman faced that real life, very scenario. He was a leper. No hope really of cure. Until out of the blue, a possibility that he could be healed and live a normal life. But the cure was so simple and so humbling, it was hard for him to accept, wasn't it? Now, there's some things about this story, about Naaman and about this story in general, I want you to get this morning. I think will mean something to all of us, whether you know Jesus or not. I think this story has something for us. First of all, notice this. Naaman is a great man, except this one thing. Because you look at the description in verse number one, notice all the accolades that are thrown at Naaman by the writer. 
He's the captain of the host of this mighty nation, this mighty army. He's a great man, it says. It's honorable, it says. He's a mighty man of valor, it says. It even says that God had given him victory over his enemies. If you'll study this, and I was reading different writers about Naaman and about verse number one in particular, it said that some of the Jewish writers of the day, now not our Bible uh, biblical writers, but other Jewish writers had credited Naaman with the arrow shot that killed Ahab. And you remember how the story went. And the Bible says a certain man uh, drew a bow at a venture by accident, just without even looking, and it hit Ahab and killed him. And some of the Jewish writers wrote and gave Naaman credit for that bow shot. So you can imagine now he's kind of got this urban legend surrounding him, this cult status. He's this mighty man. He's powerful. He's influential. He's a great uh, general. He's a great soldier. And not only that, I heard he shot and killed Ahab. So you can imagine this guy, he's got a lot going for him. Except one thing. None of it changed the fact that he was a leper. And how sad to have all these things going for him. The esteem from his king, esteem from his people. He's heroic in his exploits. Everyone knows his name. And then the last phrase of that verse says, but he was a leper. Nothing could be done. No doctor no medicine could cure him. All of his fame, all his wealth did him no good. Eventually, leprosy would take his life and it would not be pretty. It'd be horrific death. Priorities change, don't they? When your life is in the balance, all of our priorities, all of a sudden, they shift. Bob Marley was a musician, a reggae musician, died at a young age, young for me. His last words to his son were this, money can't buy life. And if you got the doctor report and the doctor said you've got a short time to live, is what is important to you now? be important to you then? Would you get online to keep checking your bank account if you knew your life was just days away? Would you worry about, did you have the latest model of this and the best upgrade of this and all the toys and the things that you owned that they were the best? Would that matter? Would you check your IRA right away to make sure that your funds, your retirement funds were doing well? Would that matter? With the status that you have amongst your peers and amongst your friends, would that really matter if the doctor said your life is just going to end in days? Because I'm telling you, so much of what's important to us now would mean so little when we were confronted with our mortality. And the truth is, we're all dying. Jesus told a parable. In his parable, you remember, he told a story about a man who had all this stuff. He had more than he could handle. And he tells himself, I'm going to build that, uh, pull down these barns because they're too small. I'm going to build bigger barns so I can stow all my stuff, all my goods, all my treasures. And then I'm going to take a, a rest. I'm going to retire. I'm going to sit back and say, now take it easy, eat and drink because you've got it made. And the point of the story I think we sometimes miss the point is this. Don't place all of your love and your time and your attention and your affection on stuff here because life is short. And it's going to be over. Be more concerned with what is going to take place in the next life. That's what Jesus was trying to get across. Think of this man, no matter, no matter what his deeds were, and evidently that he was something. 
Leprosy was always a reminder of something he could not escape. And that's this. The truth about who he really was, was that he was a leper. Now, if he had been an Israelite, probably he would not have been in the position that he was in. Their rules would have been different. He would not have been allowed, probably. And it's possible that his condition maybe wasn't advanced. But he knew and everyone around him knew that it, the handwriting was on the wall. His life and his ability to carry on the duties that he had, they were shortened because he was a leper. I want to remember these two principles from this idea. Regardless of who you are or what you have done, you can't rid yourself of who you really are. And that's you're a sinner. Now, your life may sound like this. Man, that that guy is a great father. He's the best dad. But he's a sinner. Man, she is the best mom. She takes care of her family like none other. She's just the best mom in the world. But she's a sinner. Man, he's a good employee and he works so hard. I'd like to have a bunch of him. He's the best employee we've ever seen. But he's a sinner. She's the most caring person. Man, she cares about people. She's so caring. She'll do anything she can for you. She's just the most caring person I've ever known. But she's a sinner. Boy, he's so kind and giving. He would give you anything he possibly could. He would do anything for you. He's so kind. He's so helpful. He's so giving. But he's a sinner. Man, she's so selfless. She never thinks of herself at all. She's always thinking of others and what she can do to be a help and a blessing to others. But she's a sinner. He's never had anything but a kind word. He's always said the right things and the kindest things. Every word out of his mouth is kind. He's just a kind. All his words are kind. What a person to be around. But he's a sinner. She would never hurt any. She wouldn't hurt a fly. She is just would never say or do anything to hurt anybody. But she's a sinner. Think of that. You could be the best person. You could have all the accolades and all the adjectives that a person could possibly have. But without Christ, all of those attributes, no matter how good they may sound and how great they may make you sound, all of those attributes have to be followed with this. But he's a sinner. All the good that's said about Naaman in verse number one. All the victories, all the accolades did not change the last phrase of verse one, but he was a leper. You know, when we stand before God and we're all guaranteed that that's going to happen. It's appointed unto men once to die. After that, the judgment. Did you know that the list of our accomplishments is not going to be read off? Did you know the list of all our good traits is not going to be rehearsed for everyone? Did you know all the good things that we may have done and said and been and heroic deeds or sacrificial deeds or selfless deeds? All those aren't going to be read. In fact, what kind of person we are on earth isn't really what's going to make the difference. Because think of this. Hell is full of kind people. Hell is full of compassionate people. Hell is full of giving people and loving people who are sinners. Well, if that's true, Brother Ted, then I'm without hope. What can a person possibly do if being the best human that you possibly can be makes no difference, then what does make a difference? For by grace are you saved through faith. Amen. That not of yourselves. 
It's the gift of God. You see, no one can go from sinner to saint on their own goodness. It can only happen because God's gift is given through our faith in Jesus. And I can do nothing because Jesus did it all. And regardless of who you are, what you've done, can you get this from Naaman? Your past does not have to define you. Because you know every time somebody mentioned Naaman in his day, you know what they had to add in a whisper? You know he's a leper. Man, that Naaman, he's great. Did you see the victory? You know he's a leper. Have you ever known someone who got stuck with some kind of unflattering nickname because of some mistake they might have made or some failure or something maybe that was even totally out of their control? When I was a kid, I was a good kid, so I gave good nicknames to everyone. If you wore glasses, you were, of course, four eyes. I didn't see that was ever come my way. If you had braces when you were in junior high, everyone called you tinsel teeth. I mean, just you remember these days, your body type or your looks or your your name. Can you imagine what people did with my name? Teddy. Maybe your athletic ability or lack of athletic ability. All those things are fair game to a nice nickname, aren't they? Something has to follow who you are. And as I think of Naaman, who is the leper, I always think of Rahab, who, remember her name. God delivered Rahab from Jericho because of her faith and her obedience. You remember the story? Her name is listed in the Bible ten times. Of the ten times, five times it's followed with this, Rahab the harlot. In both Old and New Testament, you see her name five times listed as the harlot. Now, maybe that was a description that was used so people would understand which Rahab they were talking about. I don't know. It sure seems like people had picked her past, doesn't it? And it followed her the rest of her life. But while that nickname followed her, I want you to note that it didn't define her. Because all that stopped. In Matthew chapter 1, if you'll read, we have a genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter number 1. And, you know, whenever I come to the Bible and there's like a whole list of names, can I be honest? Yeah. I don't necessarily read them all. I mean, I get the gist. <laughs> name, 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 you know, long name, long name. But Matthew chapter one is a little different. It's a genealogy of Christ. And it says Salmon, or Salmon beget Boaz of Rechab, or Rahab. Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Obed begat Jesse. Jesse begat David the king. Matthew didn't say anything about Rahab, the harlot. You might be sitting here wishing you could forget your past. You don't understand the things I've done, Brother Ted. If I had a nickname following me, it would be bad. I've hurt people. I've offended God. And if my nickname was following my name, it would be very unflattering. It'd be worse than Rahab the harlot or Naaman the leper or Thomas the doubter. It'd be awful. But the good news is this. Your past doesn't have to determine your present or your future. And if you'll read in Scripture, most of our Bible heroes, the people that we lift up and love to read about and, and consider heroes of our faith, most of them did things they would have just as well forgotten. 
David. If I say to you, David, some of you say David and Goliath. And the other half says David and Bathsheba. Abraham. Man, he was the father of a great nation. And all the while, Ishmael's in the background. Paul. Well, Paul didn't do anything. Well, they changed his name. Thomas, who we always call the doubter, which I don't even know if that's fair. How about Peter? He didn't. Wait a minute. Yeah, he did. And while others may want to stick whatever name it is to you forever, can I tell you, God, he forgives and forgets in a way that we can't and only he can. And even Paul who said of himself that he was the chiefest of sinners. And he did some of the worst things that you could possibly imagine when he was named Saul. But as Paul, he wrote this, forgetting those things which are behind. Rahab, the harlot. Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus. Naming the leper. Well... We're going to see that maybe he's not a leper anymore. How about point number two? By coincidence. Now, this is just a coincidence that I'm sure just happened. He had a slave girl. And this slave girl in verse, as you read in verse number two, uh, she, verse number two and three, pointed to there was a prophet in Israel named Elisha. Now, keep in mind as you read this, uh, that there was no record of anyone being healed of leprosy. No Bible record of a leprosy healing other than if you go back to Moses and Miriam, way, way back in Exodus, there's no record that Elisha or Elijah or any of the prophets could or did or had healed leprosy. It says something about this girl. She's got faith in something she's never even seen happen. She's got faith that there is a God in Israel and there's a prophet of God. And I think he can do the miraculous, the impossible. And she points to her mistress, the wife of Naaman. You know, too bad he's not in Israel. I know Elisha could take care of him. But just, I just want to point this out about this girl. Did you know that compassion is always right? always right. Because you know what I would expect from this slave girl? It says that she was captured out of her homeland. She was brought there against her will. This wasn't her choice. And if that was me, I'd be pretty glad to see Naaman die a horrible death. I'd with some measure of glee laugh at his predicament and his misery. After all, here she is away from her home and her family in a strange, godless land. In other words, he deserves it. Let him die. Because we are all, maybe I'm just talking about myself. We're all experts at making certain people get what they have coming to them, except when it's me. Have you ever been going down the highway at a good clip? And someone just flies past you. You know what you say in your head? Oh, I know what you say. I hope he gets pulled over. <laughs> I hope he gets it. And if you go down a couple miles and sure enough, there he is. Ha! <laughs> Told you, I'm so glad you got it. Now, when I'm going too fast, I'm praying that they're all, oh, Lord, help me. Let, the co let him be blind for just a minute. You've done it before in the Bible. You can do it this time. And that's the way we are. We want the other guy. When we see the criminal on TV, I hope he gets every minute in jail that he has come. We want everybody to get what they have coming. Except us. Maybe we need to recognize this too. I see in this girl. God could have our, his hand in our present situation, even if it's unpleasant or unexpected. What a coincidence. 
Naaman comes home from Israel with this slave girl. Is it possible that God, is it possible now that God would work in the lives, even when the situation they're in is grim, that God would work in that person's life? And it's right now, you may be in a, a miserable situation. You may be in a job where you can't stand it. Your coworkers are impossible and your boss is unbearable. Can I tell you something? It's possible that God may have you right there for a specific purpose. My family and my finances, my health, there's a hundred issues that you could be facing right now. But give some thought to this. God may have you right where he has you for a specific reason and purpose. The disciples, they found themselves in a boat in the middle of a storm, <laughs> thinking they were going to die. Did you know when you read that, that God had them right where he wanted so they could see his greatness? And Paul and Silas, they lay bleeding and beaten in a prison, innocent, singing praises to God at midnight. How in the world would God ever get glory in such a situation? Poor Paul, poor Silas. But there was a jailer that God wanted to do business with. Now all we read in the Philippian jailer is such a great story. I'm just telling you, whatever's going on in your life and whatever situation you wish was better, consider God might have you right where you are for a reason. Boy, I sure see that in verse 2 and 3. So Naaman, he gets permission and he heads off into Israel to Samaria and he's loaded down with all, all hundred thousands of dollars worth of gifts. And he comes with his horses and his chariots and his servants, animals loaded with gifts. And can you imagine he's going to be wearing his best uniform and he's looking at the same time impressive and intimidating but what he received as a welcome was not what he um, expected. Because you could imagine a man like Naaman under normal circumstances, his presence, just his presence, would have been met with awe and fear and respect. And now as you read in verse number 10, uh, in our vernacular, he got dissed. He got dissed big time. Standing at the door of Elisha's home in his best and behind him are servants and animals loaded down with gifts. He, a beautiful chariot. Can you imagine the picture? All this pomp and grandeur. And there he is knocking on the door. And sure enough, Elijah doesn't even bother to come out. He sends a servant who just delivers a one sentence message. And then slams the door shut. Uh, he says, go, 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 get in the river seven times. Bang. Can you imagine him? What? I can't believe he would at least come out here by, personally. No magic incantations, no, no gestures, no fireworks, no drama. Some, something big's got to happen. And all I get is this. And add to that, that muddy river. I mean, I got good rivers at home that are cold and clean, clear. And I could go dip in them. But no. He says, go down in that muddy Jordan seven times. Now, this method of healing, understand this. It's simple and it's humbling. And what you're seeing is a man whose pride has been hurt. I'm going to go home. Forget it. He's ready to forget the whole thing because it's too simple and it's definitely too humbling. You know why some people never get saved? It's too simple. It's just too simple. Well, there's no list. 
There's no ritual. I don't have to do, there's no catechism or cathedral. There's no rites I have to go through. I mean, I just have to believe like a child would believe in Jesus, who he said he was, and that he will do what he said he will do. That's just way too simple. Or maybe it's too humbling. Because some people want to do something. Because if you can do something, you know what you can say? I did something. I did this. And I did that. And I did something great for God. Or maybe I crawled on my knees and I performed some act, some contrition. Or they nailed me to a cross. If you go in some parts of the world, that you'll see that kind of thing. And God had to pay attention to me because of what I did. But it's not of ourselves. It's very humbling. I also add this. Do you know why some believers never really serve God? It's too simple and it's too humbling. I really want to serve God, Brother Ted. Great. Here's what we need. We need people in the nursery. I don't know about that. Well, how about the parking lot? Okay. We got some kids that are rowdy, one or two, out in the gym, and you can help them be less rowdy. Mm. How about drive a bus? Mm. Sing in the choir? Mm. You got anything bigger? No. Because there's no small jobs serving God. There's some that are simple. There are some that might be even humbling, but they're not small. Go get in the river seven times. They have to talk him into it. The guys that come with him as slaves, notice how they approach him in verse 13. My father. Because <laughs> um, you know, he's the big cheese and they ain't. Father, now come on. All right. Verse 14 is an unusual verse. I'll bring this point out. Follow the instructions. Because he said seven times. He didn't say five. He didn't even say six. And I can imagine if I was Naaman and I had to take off all my best stuff, lay it over my chariot, have nothing on but my long underwear, and walk out in that muddy river and start going up and down. If I hit about four and nothing's happening, I'm not happy. And you can imagine after five, there's nothing going on, no goosebumps, no lightning strikes, no changes. And after six, you know what he's telling himself? I'm going to kill Elisha. That's it. I'm fed up. Wait till I get my hands on him. And think of this. Had he given up at six, would he have been healed? You remember when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and they came to this place called Mara? You remember that? And the waters are bitter and Mara means bitter. And God had to uh, do a miracle so they could have water at Mara. And they murmured like they always did against Moses and against God. And he put the tree in and now he intervened and so they wouldn't complain. To, and, you know, it was just this big scene at Mara. It was a miracle and everything, but a big scene of their murmuring. But if you keep reading, what you'll find is they traveled, listen, eight miles from that spot. And this is what it says. They came to Elam, where were 12 wells of water, three score, 10 palm trees, and they camped there by the waters. Had they simply trusted God and gone eight more miles, there was a well for each tribe waiting with the best water and shade to relax in. But no, they had to murmur and complain when they hit Mara. And isn't it just like you and me to give up right at the verge when God's going to do something? Oh, you don't understand. I prayed, Brother Ted, twice. And God didn't answer. I quit. He doesn't listen. 
Well, I got offended and I'm quitting. I tried to teach. No one listened. I want to get involved, but I, nobody called me back. And on and on and on. We just listen. Stop short of God ready to bless and God ready to do something because we get disappointed or tired or mad and the answer could be right around the corner and the blessing could be right around the corner and we stop before we see it. Let us not be weary in well-doing for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now look at this last thing. Naaman is healed physically and spiritually. He's definitely healed. He comes up in verse number 15 and notice what he begins to say. He begins to make this great confession. There is no God except this one right here in Israel. This pronouncement showed I've got more than a physical healing. I've got an understanding. I've got a spiritual healing all those gifts that he had brought with him, and he left with far more than he brought his physical and spiritual healing. In fact, in verse number 17, notice he says this, Can I, is it okay if I take a bunch of dirt and load up my, these two donkeys with dirt to take home? And you might think, why in the world does he want to take dirt home? Simple, he wants to spread it out. And so he can say, I'm worshiping right where God was. He goes home to a foreign pagan land and spreads out that dirt that he got from Israel where he was healed. And right now he can worship God on his ground. And even in verse number 18, he spills out his confession. He says to Elisha, I've been worshiping Rimmon. I have to go with the king. He leans on me. I protect him. I'm like his bodyguard. And I go with him into this house of Rimmon. And I've, I've bowed down to him. I need forgiveness for that. Elisha says, go. Go in peace. I remember I said at the beginning, if you had, knew you had leprosy, you would do anything to be cured. You know in the Bible, leprosy is used as a picture of sin. So in that way, all of us have something in common with Naaman. In that, we're leprous, sinful, hopeless, catastrophic disaster on the scale. And the Bible is so clear that as sinners, that's who we really are, there isn't one thing we can do to cure ourselves. Not one. But because of his great love and mercy, he provided a cure. And he shed, listen, Christ shed his blood on the cross. That's so simple. It's so simple that even a little, listen, have you not seen the little five and six-year-olds want to pray and trust Christ as their Savior? Is it that simple? I'm just telling you, I've heard them with my own ears reach out to Jesus in the most simple prayer you can possibly imagine. And Jesus heard them. It's so simple. It's just believing and calling. Boy, that's so simple, Brother Ted. I don't know. There's no drama. There's no fireworks. There's no incantations. There's no big thing. Yeah, it's just simple faith in what Jesus did. Boy, I don't know if I can do that. I know. You know what else kids got in common? They're not too worried about their pride. It's kind of humbling, isn't it? They're not worried about that when they're little. That's why Jesus referred to them many times. To have faith like a little child. I don't know who you are necessarily this morning or what your spiritual condition is other than this. If you don't know Jesus... We have to tack on to the end of you, no matter how great you may be, but he's a sinner. But she's a sinner. And like Naaman, there is a cure. And Jesus says, it's so simple that even a child can believe. It does take some childlike humility, but you can come to him and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved.
Would you bow your heads with me? It could be this morning that you're here and you're not sure of your salvation. You may have some questions about it or doubts about it or you know you've never trusted Christ. I'm just telling you as simply as I can from this story, regardless of all the accolades and all the things you may have done, but he's a sinner. That's who we really are. He's a great man, but he's a sinner. If you don't know Jesus this morning, we're going to give an opportunity for you to come forward. We have men, we have ladies who would take a Bible, just show you a couple verses how you can call upon the Lord this morning. So let me ask this. Is there one who would say, Brother Ted, would you pray for me? I don't know for sure that I'm saved. I'm concerned about it. But I I don't know for sure that if I died, if today was my last day, I don't know that heaven would be my home. I may have done religious things or or, uh, be religious, been baptized, church member somewhere. None of that matters. I just, I'm not sure of my salvation, but I'm concerned. Would you pray for me? Who would raise their hand? Pray for me, Brother Ted. I'm not sure of my salvation, but I'm concerned. I want you to pray for me. Who would be the first to raise your hand so I know who to pray for? Who would be the first? How many would say, Brother Ted, would you pray for me this way? I'm a believer. But some of those things that you mentioned this morning, they did speak to my heart. I'm in a tough situation. I wish it was different, but maybe God's got me there for a reason. Maybe God wants to use me like he used a little slave girl to point someone to the cure. Maybe God has me there. Maybe God spoke to you in some way that way. How, if, if that's the case, would you raise your hand just so I know who to pray for? Yes, I see many hands. Thank you. Amen. However God's spoken to your heart, we're going to have a time of invitation. And I invite you to come forward. If you want to talk with someone, we have people here. Be glad to talk with you. Or if you just want to come and pray, I invite you to do that. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your word. Thankful that you provided the cure for all of us. That we can go from sinner to saint. We can go from death to life simply by placing our faith in Christ and what you did for us on the cross. It's so simple. And it is humbling. And for that reason, many will not be saved. I pray if there's one this morning you've been dealing with, I pray that they would come forward. And if you've dealt with a believer in some way, would they, Lord, I pray, respond to you even right now, maybe where they're sitting or maybe here at the altar, however you see fit, however you're leading, would you give your will in this invitation in Jesus' name. Let's all stand.